0: So let's turn again after a three week uh, uh, break to the Gospel of Mark and uh, Mark chapter 8, reading from verse 27. It's page 1017 in our church Bibles. And let's hear the Word of God. And come now to the very heart of Mark's gospel, to the great events and disclosures at the, uh, the center of the gospel of Mark, which we've been going through uh, in uh, big giant leaps over the autumn. Verse 27, Jesus went on with his disciples to the, village, the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, and the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside, and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter, and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses, And one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Now they say, and you've heard this saying, truth is stranger than fiction. You've heard that saying? Know where it possibly comes from? Well, fiction can be strange enough. All sorts of wonderful and amazing and incredible ideas and pictures can be created in fiction. And let's take one obvious example of science fiction. One of the great works of science fiction, both in terms of the, uh, the printed page and the screen, at indeed the same time, was Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 a Space Odyssey. Nod your head if you've seen that film. Well, not so many, but some of you have seen that film, 2001, A Space Odyssey, Arthur C. Clarke. It's about ape men living on Earth several million years ago. It's about giant slabs of metal on this world and on one of Saturn's moons. It's about space travel. It's about a computer called HAL that becomes subversive, and uh, mutinous and destroys the mission and all sorts of other things. And you can go and read the book if you really would like to do that or watch it, uh, possibly on some, uh, on some kind of platform. But in his foreword, um, Arthur C. Clarke wrote the following words. The barriers of distance are crumbling. One day we shall meet our equals or our master's among the stars. Men have been slow to face this prospect. Some still hope that it may never become reality. Increasing numbers, however, are asking, why have such meetings not occurred already, since we ourselves are about to venture into space? This was 1968, when the Apollo missions were just starting. Why not indeed? Here is one possible answer to that very reasonable question. But please remember, this is only a work of fiction. The truth, as always, will be far stranger. Because truth is stranger than fiction, that may be the case. But what is far more important than that, friends, this morning is that truth is truer than fiction. Which sounds like a no-brainer and is. It's obvious. Truth is truer than fiction. Why? Well, again, the answer is blindingly obvious. Because truth isn't fiction. Because truth is reality. And we are addressing here... As we do every time we gather, we're talking about what's real, not what's fictitious. And so today we focus on this narrative of Jesus' transfiguration. And this is what we say because the Bible says, because the Holy Spirit says, this is truth, it is truth, it's reality, it's not fiction. And we can say this with confidence. Why? Well, because Peter, one of the disciples who was there at the time, wrote these words down about 30 years later in his second letter two Peter 1, 16 to 18. These are the words of one of the three men who were there to witness this amazing event. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honour and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter says, as he faces his own impending martyrdom, his death, his suffering as a, as a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, he says, readers, brothers and sisters, friends, he says, look, I'm not making this up wasn't a cleverly invented story. I was there. It changed me. It changed us. In fact, everything to do with this man, Jesus, and the way he came into our lives and the things he did and the things he said and what we saw and heard and what happened changed us and changed everything forever and forever. And so this morning, I want us to come to that Mount of Transfiguration and do three simple things with Jesus. I want us to see him. I want us to know him. I want us to hear him. See him. Know him. Hear him. And what do we see, first of all? We see the glory of Jesus. And when I say see the glory of Jesus, it's a glory that you can't miss. It's a glory that could not be overlooked. There are some sights, aren't there, in this world that you just can't ignore. I remember going some years ago to the city of Milan in northern Italy, going there by train, traveling by subway, climbing out onto the uh, pedestrian area. And out I came, and immediately, Milan Cathedral, vast, imposing, beautiful, overwhelming was just in your face it was there it was it was colossal you couldn't miss it it was a sight of glory maybe some of you have been to amazing places whether man-made places or we might say natural god-made places and you would say the same thing it's unmissably glorious you can't overlook it You go to northern India or or Nepal and you happen to see a a vista of the sweeping Himalayas. Can you miss that? Of course you can't. Or you you go to one of the great waterfalls of the world, the, the Angel Falls, the Niagara Falls, the great falls I've been to up in the country of Iceland and you can hear them. They're deafening from miles around and they're vast and they're beautiful. Or you have that rare experience of witnessing a total solar eclipse. And everything goes quiet. Everything goes dark. Everything goes cold. The birds stop singing. The cars stop driving past. And in the middle of day, it becomes like night. And the moon covers the sun. And it takes your breath away. And no one can do anything but say, this is amazing. This is glorious. This is wonderful. Now Mark gives us his own description here of what happened on this day. What's this account all about? The transfiguration. What does it mean? Jesus changed his very appearance. His appearance was dramatically altered. Changed in a glorious and unforgettable and overwhelming way. We read here that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And Mark piles up here unusual words, unusual words to to explain what happened. It wasn't just that these clothes were very, very white. There was a luminosity about them, a brilliance about them. Every Friday evening we say to our three children, give us your five school t-shirts, which are white, and put them in the wash. And we'll wash them, and they'll come out on Saturday whiter than they were on Friday. But not white like this. Not so white that they kind of shine like the sun with a luminosity and a brilliance. This is something supernatural. No artist could mix his palettes on, uh, on his paint board to create a whiteness like this. Here is something that is dramatic. Here is light. Here is Jesus clothed in pure, brilliant, radiant light. Now what does that mean? Matthew adds in his version that uh, Jesus' face also shone like the sun Luke says something similar. So what do we have here? We have light. What's light? Light is the first creation of God. You want to get back in creation to as close to God himself as possible, and you get back to Genesis 1 verse 3, where you read that God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Today the sun is shining. Some of you I can see over there, like Josh, are almost dazzled by the light of the sun in that corner of the, uh, of the building. The sun is very bright. But here was, a, if you like, a, a more primal brightness than the brightness of the sun. Here was the very light of God. Here was the light that shouts out, God is here. What does light mean? You go back to the Old Testament and what do you see there? You go to Moses, who will appear a bit later on, and Moses saw the burning bush and this light, this fire that did not devour the bush. There's something going on here. He thought, I'm going to take a look. What was it? Well, it's the very presence of God which is there, isn't it? The children of Israel saw the pillar of fire which led them through the desert. There was that bright, luminous cloud in the temple, and the tabernacle. What was that light saying? One great message. God is here. God is with you. This light is the presence of God. And now here are Peter and James and John on a high mountain, alone by themselves with Jesus, and they see Jesus full of light. Light emanating from him, radiating from him. What does that mean? What does that say about Jesus? This is what we need to understand, folks many passages we could dig into to explain who Jesus is and what this means. Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is the God who is with us. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the one in whom all the fullness of God dwells bodily. In this man, in Jesus' light, and that light is the life of men and the life of women and the life of children. The sun's shining today, but isn't it true, friends, that we live in a world of drab, dull, dingy mediocrity in so many ways? There's very little in the news, isn't there? Uh, To to cheer us, to elevate us, to make people's lives happy. We live in a, a dull, dark world. We live in a society where more and more people experience depression and even despair. And this is not new. This is not just today. This is not just now. It's always been that way, hasn't it? David? King David knew that. That's why he wrote in Psalm 4 and verse 6, there are many who say, who will show us some good? What does good look like? Give me a vision of happiness. Give us a vision of peace, of joy, of laughter, of warmth, of light. We want these things, we lack these things, we need these things in our lives, in our hearts. We all feel that way. And David goes on with a plea from his own heart. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. The great plea of Psalm 80, which is repeated. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And the words of Psalm 36, which we began the sermon with, the service with this morning. In you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. In who? In you. Who's you? In Jesus. And only in Jesus. As I come to my next point. We see him. We see that light, we see that divine light, but we see now, we know now, the greatness of Jesus. That's my second point, know him, the greatness of Jesus. And now we notice here in chapter 9 and verse 4 that two other people appear on the scene. Elijah with Moses are suddenly there on this mountain. And they're talking with Jesus. And for the time time being, let's not stop to think about how it was that they got there, or what they looked like, or how Peter and the other disciples knew who they were. But let's go on to what Peter himself says. And we feel sympathy for Peter, don't we? This man is terrified and so are James and John. And maybe James and John are the kind who, when they're terrified, go a bit stum and can't say very much, as some of us are. But others of us are like Peter, aren't we? And we're frightened, we're nervous, we're agitated. Our mouths open and we blurt things out. And that's exactly what Peter does. And he says, Rabbi Jesus, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. Let's have a tent and a tent and a tent. Three Similar tents, all here. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. After all, they've just joined you here. You three are here. How about you come and stay here for a while and have some time together? You, with Moses, with Elijah. What a good idea. Well, not for long. Because then comes a cloud. It envelops them. It overwhelms them. Surrounds them. And then they hear the voice of God the Father. This voice resounding around them. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. You don't know what you're saying, Peter. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. God does not say. These three are my beloved sons, listen to them. Or these three are my servants I've chosen, listen to all three of them. But no, there is an exclusivity here. This one is my son, and he alone, listen to him. And following this, they look around and they see no one but Jesus. Now, what are we meant to take away from this? Well, I think it's very, very clear. Peter's words have been inadvertent, unintentional. But God has told us here and in the other two Gospels where this record is is given, what it is that God himself says to Peter. This is my beloved son. It's not one for Jesus and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Moses and Elijah and Jesus are not like the three musketeers, Atos, Portos and Aramis, all for one and one for all, level playing field, all standing on the same podium. They're not interchangeable. Jesus and Jesus alone is God's beloved son. Jesus alone stands far above and beyond Moses and Elijah. He always will and he always must. Let me risk a cricketing illustration. Some of you know how I follow cricket. In the year 1981, it could have been said with some justification that Ian Botham was the greatest all-round cricketer in the world. I'm looking at George and Prue and, uh, and even uh, David and Ruth, and they're kind of nodding, saying, well, yes, uh, Maybe you go back to those days and what Ian Botham did uh, in that season here in the Ashes. No one could rival him. But two years later, there were other rivals to the crown of greatest cricketing all-rounder. Imran Khan of Pakistan, President Prime Minister of Pakistan. Kapil Dev of India, Richard Hadley of New Zealand. And they shared the limelight with him you could talk about those four great cricketers in the same breath. And the same could be true of other sporting heroes in other sports, in other eras, and today as well. Muhammad Ali, the greatest, but not forever. Tiger Woods, unparalleled. But then he lost his crown. Coming back again, maybe, but not for long. Roger Federer, amazing tennis player, outstanding tennis player, but his crown is slipping. For a while these sportsmen seem untouchable, unassailable, but soon others begin to equal them and even surpass them. And to say about one sporting hero or another that he or she is very great, but there are others who might be as good as them or better, is a matter of reasonable opinion. It's not blasphemy. It's not heresy if I think that Djokovic is better than Federer or Rory McElroy is better than Tiger Woods or Gary Sobers was better than Ian Botham, which he was, by the way, for our West Indian friends here. But, but... To be absolutely clear here, Jesus Christ has no rivals. We cannot, we dare not, we must not say that Jesus is a great religious and spiritual leader and how much we respect and adore and admire Jesus Christ and then say a sentence or two later, and of course there are others as well who are great religious spiritual leaders. Confucius and Buddha and Mohammed and uh, others who come later on and other great philosophers. People talk about uh, Marx, don't they? They talk about Freud. They talk about Voltaire. They talk about Plato. They, They talk about all sorts of people. They talk about Gandhi and Martin Luther King. But no one, but no one can be put on a pedestal with Jesus. God the Father won't allow it. He doesn't say of Moses and Elijah, yes, they share the limelight with Jesus, they're equally great, not at all. Here's a question, why are they there anyway? What are they doing there to begin with? One reason is that they're both associated with mountains, both associated with the glory of God. Think about it for a moment or two. Moses went up on Mount Sinai, didn't he? And he saw the glory of God there. And although he never looked full into the face of God, when he had been with God, his face was shining with a reflected glory, but that shining faded away. It wasn't his own inherent light coming from within. It was a reflection of the glory of God And likewise, we could say Elijah saw the glory of God on a mountain, didn't he? He saw on Mount Carmel how the fire of God came down on the offering that he brought. And in some measure, Elijah reflected the glory of God. So you see, Moses and Elijah are both associated with the glory of God, the appearance of God, the shining of God. But this is where Jesus is so different. Who is he? He is the radiance of the glory of God. And that glory will not be given to any other. He is that light. And the only light. There can never be a light like him. For that light is the life of men. In him we see life. In him we see light. But I've got one final question this morning most important one. Why is this transfiguration happening now? Why at this particular point in history? I've said already, see him. See that glory. Know him. Know his greatness. Know that his glory is a uniquely great glory And Jesus will brook no rivals. There can be no one like him at all. As Son of God and Lord and Saviour and Christ and salvation. But now hear him. Hear the Gospel of Jesus. Matthew and Mark and Luke all put this transfiguration narrative immediately after the record of Jesus, telling the disciples, telling them what? That he, as Christ and Son of God, must suffer many things and be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. You can go to Matthew 16 and 17, you go here to Mark 8 and 9, you go to Luke chapter 9, it's the same order. That great revelation of Jesus as the Christ, followed then by Jesus telling the disciples he must suffer many things and be rejected and killed and on the third day rise again. And then straight away after that, you're into the transfiguration. And in the transfiguration, on all three occasions, you have God the Father saying precisely these words to the disciples. This is my beloved son. This is my son. Listen to him. And then what Mark also does is he relates on a further two occasions that Jesus says to his disciples that he must be rejected, must be ridiculed, must be hated, must be flogged and spat upon and killed and on the third day rise again and on all of these occasions when Jesus says this to the disciples they don't get it they don't understand it so why is the transfiguration happening now think about it for a while and the answer will become clear and then you will really understand the gospel. Now you see the disciples and Peter in particular, they've done all right, you might say. They've begun well. A few verses before, Peter gets the identity of Jesus bang on. Who do people say that I am, says Jesus? Well, they say various people. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, other prophets. Uh, various opinions, opinion polls, Tell you all sorts of things, don't they? They last for a while, but then we have to get down to the, the facts of the matter, to the truth. Who do you say that I am? Oh, that's a big question, isn't it? Peter, James, John, who do you say that Jesus is? You are the Christ. Yes. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter, Well done, if if that's the right expression. Peter, you're right. Peter, you've spoken the truth. Now listen, Peter. Now listen, James John. Now listen, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, all the rest of you. Listen to me for a while. I have to suffer and die. I have to go to Jerusalem. I have to be rejected and killed by my own people there. And then on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And Jesus says this to the disciples not just once, not just twice, but three times. But they don't understand, and they reject, and they don't believe, and they don't even seem to hear this. And then notice something else this morning. It's always good to compare different gospel accounts with one another. And Luke, in his account, has an interesting addition that you may know about. Because there in Luke's gospel, we read that Moses and Elijah, who are with Jesus, were talking to him about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. This is significant. The unique glory and greatness of Jesus has everything to do with his departure which he is about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And I've got a question for you. Anyone here answer this question? Does anybody know what Greek word is used for departure in Luke chapter 9? I'll give you a clue. It's one of the books of the Old Testament. Exodus. Thank you, Peter. Exodus. Jesus spoke to Moses and Elijah, and they were talking about His Exodus. Exodus, what's that? Well, it's when Moses led the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, out of the land of bondage. And here's Peter, and here's James, and here's John. And they're thinking to themselves, wow, here's Moses, the Exodus man, our national hero, our liberator, The man who, with God's obvious help, led us as a nation from being in captivity and misery and slavery and brought us to the promised land. The Exodus man is here. And here's Elijah as well. Oh, what a great man Elijah is. The man who was sent by God to turn the people of Israel back to the Lord, to turn the fathers and the children back to their Lord and their God. These great Exodus men are here. But Jesus is talking about his Exodus. And what's that? What's that? He's not going to accomplish only a national, physical, historical liberation of a people from a territory on earth. He's exodusing this world, in order to deliver his people from a spiritual bondage, from spiritual slavery, from the tyranny of sin and Satan and death itself. This is his great mission. That's why Jesus has come into this world. Now, Peter James, John, listen to this. God the Father has just said something to you which shall be ringing in your ears for the rest of your life. I know you've just seen Moses. What a privilege! What an out-of-world experience that would be. Which of us would not want to see Moses or Elijah or Abraham or I don't know, William the Conqueror or Henry VIII or some historical character in front of us now, that would be out of this world, would it not? I know you've seen Moses. I know you've seen Elijah. But I want you to listen to only one of these men, and that's Jesus. You're so hard of hearing. You're not listening. And so what I've done for you three men is this. I have glorified Jesus. In a supernatural way, I've made him shine brighter than the sun with his own brilliance and glory. He shines brighter than those two ever did, ever would, ever will. Why? Why? Because what they looked forward to, what they anticipated, what they prophesied, Jesus fully. Fully accomplishes. Moses prayed to God, didn't he? You remember Exodus 33, the time of the golden calf. Show me your glory. I want to see your face, Lord God. I want to see you. I want to know you. I want to know your ways. What a a, a good desire and ambition Moses had, didn't he? I want to see you and know you, Lord. Remember, God says to him, I I will make all my glory pass in front of you, but you won't be able to see me fully in the face. You'll only see me from behind. I'll hide you in the rock as, as I go by, for no man can see God fully in the face and live. You can't see that glory today, Moses. No, you can't. But on the Mount of Transfiguration, the innermost longing of Moses was realized. I want to see the glory of God. Moses was not happy that he and the people should just go to the land with an angel or two to escort them and get there safely and live there for a while and be at peace. No, Moses had a bigger desire than that. I want to know God. I want to see his glory. I want to see his face. where do we see the face of God? Where do we see the glory of God? We see it here, we see it in Jesus Christ, in Christ alone. The glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. I said earlier on, what if you or I are down this morning? I mean depressed, I mean anxious, I mean fearful, I mean we're going through this sad world and our lives don't seem very exciting and uh, The country's gone to the dogs and the world's going to the dogs and we're getting older and nothing's getting any better. And everything seems a little bit drab today. Well, what do you need? What do I need? We need to see a sight of glory. We need to see the face of Jesus Christ. We need to see the glory of God. Peter, James, John, listen to him. Listen to him now. Listen to what now? Listen very carefully, Peter and James and John, to the things that Jesus is saying to you again and again and again, and pay attention to them. What's he saying to them? He's saying he's got to die. He's saying he's got to suffer. He's saying he's got to be crucified. He's saying he's then got to be raised from the dead. And this is the glory of Jesus Christ. This is the greatness of Christ. This is what makes him great for us that he's going to the cross for us, that he's going to lay down his life for us, that he's going to die for us, to die in your place, to die in my place. You and I cannot know peace with God and forgiveness of sins and everlasting life and a conscience at rest and deliverance from the fear of death. Apart from this, that Jesus Christ went there and died in your place and mine, if we believe. If the words of Jesus aren't good enough for you, Peter, James, and John, well, remember the sight that there's a greater glory in Jesus than in Moses, than in Elijah, than in anyone else. See that glory of Jesus. It's a unique glory. It's the glory of God, for He is equal with God. And there is no salvation apart from in Jesus. Remember Simeon, we're coming to Christmas time. And Simeon, that old man, being moved by the Spirit to go into the temple and cradling the infant Jesus in his arms and saying, Oh, now at last, now at last, Lord, let me go, let me die. I've seen the Lord's salvation. What have you seen, Simeon? He's seen a baby. He's seen a human being. And that human being, that human Jesus is the only saviour that God gives to this world. He's your only saviour and my only saviour. That's how we're saved. No other way. You can't better yourself. You can't try harder. You can't set new ambitions and say you're going to turn over a new leaf. No, you have to put all your trust and hope in Jesus. What do these men see at the end of this narrative? They look around them. The cloud has gone. The voice is silenced. Moses is gone. Elijah's gone. Verse 8, suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus only. And that's Christianity, my friends. It's Jesus only. This is the truth. It may be stranger than fiction, but I don't care about fiction. It's truer than fiction. Fiction is false. You read your sci-fi book if you want. Oh, yeah. They're all right, aren't they? Arthur C. Clarke, H.G. Wells, John Wyndham, who are the more recent ones? I don't know. You Watch The Matrix if you want. Oh, people went on about The Matrix 20-odd years ago. I've got to watch The Matrix. It's wonderful. I don't know. I fell asleep during The Matrix. I don't know what it was on. Who's the goody? Who's the bady? I don't know. I don't understand these things. I'm Far too dim to understand the matrix. But I kind of get this. I kind of get this. And this is true. It's real. The cross of Jesus is as real as this lectern that I'm banging right now. His hands were as real as my hands. His blood, where's it gone? The wine glass there was real blood. And he died a real death. For we did not follow Christ. Cleverly invented stories when we made known to you the, uh, the appearing and the uh, coming of the Son of God. We were eyewitnesses of His Majesty. We saw it. The Apostle John goes on to say, doesn't he? He begins his first letter with uh, similar words that which we have seen, that which we have heard, that which we have touched, those tangible things with our senses. Christianity is, is historical, it's, it's real, it's life, it's, it's gritty, it's, it's you, it's me, it's Monday to Sunday, it's, it's the whole year, it's home, it's family, it's waking up, it's falling asleep, it's eating, it's drinking, it's crying, it's laughing, it's, it's the whole of life, it's the whole life of Jesus being united to our life as we trust in his death. And what we must do this morning is see the majesty of Jesus Christ and learn what these apostles were meant to learn. There's glory, there's unique greatness. Now, at this point when he's talking about his death, why is his death so important? Why is the death of Jesus so important? Why do we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified? Why does it say that there on that sign in the vestibule there that we preach Christ and him crucified? I'll tell you why. It's because it's through Jesus Christ alone, through his death and resurrection alone, that you can be rescued from sin, the sin that cripples you and kills you, and pollutes you and distresses you and others. And you can be rescued from judgment and condemnation that otherwise you would face in the hands of an angry God the day that you die and pass from this life. You can be rescued from the wrath of God that you and I all deserve to be, to be piled upon us. We can be delivered from everlasting hell. And we can be delivered to paradise To that place where the tree never withers and the fruit's always in season. To eternal life. To eternal joy. To eternal peace. To eternal happiness. To see the face of God and the face of Jesus Christ. That's what this death of Jesus means for you and for me. By his death, he delivers you from one to the other. It's the only way. Now and forever. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ and him crucified. The glory of Jesus Christ. For whoever who trusts and believes in him and hears a message like this today and does not harden their heart, but believes to the saving of your souls. Praise, glory, adoration, power. Be to Jesus Christ alone, now and forever. We'll pray together. O Lord, our God in heaven, this is what you have done, sending your only Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to condemn our sin in his flesh, to raise us to glory. To see his glory, to be taken to that mountain, and, O Lord, to an even better mountain, where our sight of Jesus will not fade, where our presence and our joy will be from everlasting to everlasting. O Lord, our God, work the power of your gospel in all our hearts, and bring the knowledge of Jesus to every heart and increase our knowledge and our love and our understanding. Oh Lord, come in your mercy to us, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.